When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How you doing? I'm great. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Getting some Newcastle, Indiana there. Got yeah. It. He is finally turning a hillbilly. That's great. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz bassist Andy Curran. Andy first burst onto the Canadian music scene in 1982 as a founding member of Coney Hatch. Curran released his first solo album in 92 and was nominated for two Juno Awards that year, taking home the Most Promising Male Vocalist of the Year Award. Congrats on that. In recent times, Andy has served as a member of the group Envy of None alongside Alex Lifeson of Rush. Plus, he spends a lot of his time in what he says is the other side of the desk sometimes, so we'll talk about that as well. But that hasn't stopped him writing, producing, and performing with Coney Hatch. And their latest album that we'll also discuss today, uh, Postcard from Germany, is out. So welcome to the Music Buzz, Andy Curran. Thank you very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be on, on today, and nice to see my uh, friend Hugh Syme, his smiling face. I haven't seen him in a while. And you too, Andrew. Yeah, man. Great to have you on here. On that intro, when Andy refers to you as bass player, that's kind of how I've always known you, and certainly a member of Coney Hatch. But just doing a deeper dive on, on you, because, you know, we, we are not in touch. We've known each other probably since the 70s, on and off. But to discover the actual plethora of songs you've done as a co-writer, uh, and we'll get into this later, but just your work with Kim on Kimosabi was really lovely. Man, I want to I hear more about that. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. And Kim, Kim Mitchell's a, Kim, Kim's a dear friend. And I don't even think I would be on, on this uh, podcast with you guys today if it wasn't for Kim plucking us from obscurity in the bars and, and championing Coney Hatch. So that, that is a good chapter with Kim Mitchell. Yeah, he's a treasure. Your new record, Postcard from Germany, the new Coney Hatch live record. I've got to say, man, you know, I went back and compared some of the live versions with the original records and 
The energy, you guys sound like you're 20 years old. The energy is fantastic. I would like to talk about a few of my favorites that that really just hit me off. That The whole thing's great. But like the, the first tune, We Got the Night, and that was from your first record. Great primal rocker. Uh, Stand Up, which I thought was way better the way you're doing it now. Like it's got more of a Zeppelin vibe to it or something, but it's just, it rocks on this record. Really great. Thank you, Dan. And your bass playing, I don't know if you were influenced at all by Dennis Dunaway, but you remind me, he kind of played lead bass and, and John Entwistle did the same thing. You remind me of like on Blown Away, that thing you got, it's just kind of lead bass in spots. And I love that as a drummer. I love it when the rhythm section gets to get to shine like that. And I thought you did that on that tune. And Boys Club is you're kind of doing that octavy thing. Very cool stuff, man. I hope we get to play together sometime. You know, that's fantastic. Thank you for saying that. Well, I, I, listen, drummers are usually my best friend. And if the drummer and the bass player aren't locked in, then the basement of the house is going to cr is going to crumble. And um, so. Uh, um, those are those are nice comp compliments you played uh, paid me, but you know, in terms of the the bass and 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 drum topic that you just brought up, you know, certainly with Coney Hatch, we always were told that we packed quite a bit more wallop when we played live, and um, there's something a bit more primal to when we we played live. I you know um, I did my best on the Coney Hatch four record to, to I, I I produced it for the band. And I really wanted to try to get as close as we um, were live. And I thought the best, my favorite records sometimes are the best uh, representation of the band live. So our studio endeavors sometimes, I mean, Kim Mitchell the, on the debut album, I think he got very close to what the, the spirit of Coney Hatch was with Stand Up and Blown Away. The lead bass parts that you're talking about, I usually try to pick my moments just to pop my head through to go, I'm here. But most of the time I'm laying it down with the drummer and I have a nickname here in in Canada that I've been called the Earl of Eighth Notes. Um, I think I've played more eighth notes than than most. Uh, maybe not as many as the guy in ACDC, but to me, there's a very important relationship with the the bass and drums, especially on the type of rock that Coney Hatch does, where I really pick my moments. But with Envy of None, skipping right over to that. Um, that was a total different uh, mindset and on, on the bass playing. And yeah, Hugh will like this because Hugh, you know, I when I learned that Hugh was actually, uh, you know, when I went down the rabbit hole and found out that he played with Ian Thomas and played on a Rush record and an amazing keyboard player, I share the same love for old analog synths and Moog Taurus pedals and all that kind of stuff, right? So when I was working with Alex on, on Envy and None, candidly i got kind of bored uh on some of the songs and thought i i'm not going to play electric bass on this i'm going to go plug in you know and, and play a moog source on it or or you know get some keyboard bass going on it or or sometimes i would double the two but i i guess primarily i am am known as a bassist but with coney um half of the vocalist uh team as well and then on my solo stuff stepped out front and handled all, all of the vocals so uh Guys like Phil Linnett were big inspiration for me and, and Getty himself, just on the bass playing and, and and singing at the same time. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Phil was fantastic. The Taurus pedals, if I'm, I'm hearing correctly on Envy of None. Absolutely. There's a bunch of, I'm going to pimp a, pro, a, a product here. 
when I was in California with Rush, I had a few days off and I went down to um, Sunset and I went into the Guitar Center and I went into the keyboard section and I found this little, you know, th- I don't know, it was like a three-quarter keyboard and it was made by a company called Arch- Archeria and it was called the Analog Player. And Hugh, I opened up this suite of sounds available and it was a whole pack of Moog um, sounds in there and there was Mellotrons and there was old keyboards that you would have probably had the physical versions of. And I put the headphones in and I played it and I bought it on the spot. And and so, um, you know, fast forward many, many years later, I used the Archeria analog player pack on it. I work a lot with IK Multimedia and they've got Sample Tank and there was beautiful strings in there. So I, I have to proudly say, Hugh, that a lot of the keyboards on the MVU Nun record, I played them. And and I played them not sequence. I'm not what I would call a keyboard player, but I can one and two finger stuff. So all of that is a lot of that is the analog stuff. You know what I was going to mention uh, about that that I I noticed this about the Envy of None record and what an unexpected brave record for you guys to do, coming from kind of a different genre and going check this out the total boom it's like when the birds went country after being psychedelic hey check this out just really unexpected but i noticed on the tracks and I, i've got three favorites on it but i noticed especially uh the one look inside what a wild feel so you've got that double time techno loop going and then the drums are slowed down right because that halftime shuffle it sure sounds like you slowed the tape he played it faster and it was slowed but it's not perfectly quantized or anything. There's human feel to it. Thank God. Yeah, there's human feel to it. But what an inter- interesting song and approach that you guys did on this record. And Joe Vitale playing on A Dog's Life, that's my favorite song. I just I think this, that's my favorite song song on there for sure. And just to hear Joe, man, he's come on now. Joe sounds like he he's like 17 years old on that track. Yeah, yeah. Like you guys sound like on on uh, the postcard from Germany record. Yeah, he's he sounds that young and vital, vital Vitali, I guess. For look inside, um, interesting story for you guys that I want to share. So that drum feel that you're talking about, um, the triplet, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I, I yeah, I still work and and compose in a uh, in a computer program called Acid. And Acid used to have all these crazy loops in there. And uh, I believe Joe Vitale even actually has a, a a loop pack that you can use in Acid. So a lot of times when I'm I'm starting the song off, I'll find a loop or a groove that I like because I I wish I had a, a drummer like you around a Dane that I could say come on over and play. But I'll start with the loop pack. So I discovered that loop. And um, a big bottle of red wine and a Rickenbacker bass plugged into my uh, Tech 21, totally overdriven, and just came up with that stoned kind of ethereal line. And I sent it over to Alex. And he said, oh, my God, this thing is super trippy. Like, where the hell did this come from? And I, and I said, well, probably the red wine um, and and the loop. Um, but but oddly enough, the, 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 we we got David Steinberg, a.k.a. David Quinton, who is a Toronto drummer, played in um, with Steve Baders and the Dead Boys, and he played in a punk band called The Mods. I sent, uh, Alex said, we should have a, a human on this. We shouldn't have a loop. We should have somebody play it. So I sent the loop over to David Steinberg, 
And um, I said, would you mind trying this? And he went and he said, yes, give me some feedback on, on, on how you'd like me to go. Because it, it sounds very jazzy. It sounds like a triplet, you know, um, halftime triplet. And I said, do me a favor, dude. Play like you're 16 and stoned. That's how I want you to play this. Because that's the feel of it, right? I said, please, Dane, you might appreciate this. I said, please don't hold back and please don't play a, a jazz feel. I want you to play like your 16-year-old goofy kid in rehearsal. We drank too much and play like you're stoned. And so he sent us that take and then that weird syncopated thing off the top that you think is is keyboards. That's Alex playing guitar. That's guitar, believe it or not. Really? Well, man, nobody's ever asked me to do that. Play like you're 16 and, and drunk and stoned. Man, I'd be, woo, this is going to be fun. This is going to be the best session I've ever played. Well, let me interject there. The problem would be is that you would go out and buy way too much beer, drink too much, and then you would get stoned, and then it would sound Maybe like shit. Get then I'd forget how to push <laughs> yeah. record or something. That'd he, probably he be said, it. He didn't say to go out and drink and get stoned. He said to kind of act like, oh, darn it. Act okay. like it. Yeah, that's totally different. <laughs> Just wanted to clear that up. Well, anyway, that's why I'm going to listen to that again, because I could have swore it, man, that's a cool, whatever he's running, processing he's using on the guitar, he fooled me. What an interesting, interesting record, man. Alex, this surprised me on many occasions. And I've been in the studio listening to other projects by other bands like Tiles and so on. And I'd hear a great guitar passage and I would think, well, who's that? You know, and they would say, guess. I'd go, is it Kim? No. Uh, and I, I could not, for the love of me, think that that was, it was so outside of what I knew Alex for, but it was Alex. He, you know, away from the, the template or the, the the rigors of being recognizable as Rush, he is he's really vast in what he can bring to anything, any party. Sure. And I bet you guys loved being able to just do something, a project like this, you know, instead, you know, other than what you guys are known for, when you can break off into something like this, it's like, gosh, it's, it's got to be a you know what, Dane? It it, it really was um, liberating, and uh, and I will tell you that that from the from the onset of the project, um, there was no record label, there was no manager, there was no buddy, there was no producer in there. So it started off with the spirit of four musicians exchanging ideas, and no parameters. So nobody said don't write anything too heavy. Let's not get too poppy. We just essentially sent some ideas around. And if everybody loved it, we started working on it. And so, I, and I mean this respectfully, there was no interference from outside parties, right? Which I think, I think it just opened up the canvas to do whatever the heck we wanted. And when the record finally came out, there was, I, you know, we were pleasantly surprised that um, how well it was received. But I would say, you know, like an 80-20 from Rush fans, it was positive. The, the other 20% said, where's Alex Lifeson? Can't hear his guitars. And Alex proudly came out and said, I purposely crafted my guitar sounds to not sound like guitars. I had fun processing them, turning them backwards, putting reverb on them, syncopating them, using gated, um, gated, um, you know, reverb things to make them sound, sound really weird. And he said to me, respectfully, been there, done it. I've played, I've, I, you know, so this is a nice stretch for him, for myself, for everybody not to do the same that we are expected to do. And um, Alex said, said vocally, 
Uh, and, and he was answered in an interviews. If you're missing the way that I played in Rush, then go put on the Rush record. Because that's that's what I did when I was in Rush, right? So um, he had a lot of fun stretching. He had a lot of fun stretching. The very organic sounding, um, considering what I read about how you pretty much flew in the parts to each other, perhaps a pandemic uh, issue, but it didn't feel like it was just sort of disparate parts being responded to in other terror, in other you know sectors of the world. It really sounded like you got together and created this. So. Uh, I agree with that, Hugh. Um, my thoughts on it too, and just, I mean, I'm a fan of Rush, fan of Alex, et cetera. But with that project, a lot of times, you know, there's an advantage to having someone who's world no, world famous and known in a band, of course, because it elevates and brings you right up in front of people. But the, the the trick with that a lot of times is it doesn't come across as organic or it comes across as kind of like, oh, this is some vanity project and it's pompous. But it didn't do any of that. So not only the music, but I think the perception element, which is so important. And, not, and there's been plenty of bands that have not accomplished that when they, you know, either gone outside of their band or their band's no longer around and they do something else because they're always obviously judged by their success. But I, I thought that project from a musical standpoint, you guys have already covered the differences, but from a marketing and perception kind of PR hat, which I'm wearing most of the time, um, it came across the right way. It didn't come across with like, oh, this is, you know, it just it just came across in a really cool, organic way. And only band I was thinking of right now that has done that well over the years when they've done stuff outside of their band is Pearl Jam. Whenever one of those guys goes off and does something, it's always kind of done in a very cool, organic way that doesn't seem weird, you know. And I think that's it's not easy to do, you know. No, that takes that takes some balls. Thank you. The last track on the record, which is just one four one four acoustic guitar, brush drums. It's amazing what you guys did with the as, uh, atmospherics on that on that simple chord progression. It's just kind of like a, I don't know, it's it's just a beautiful way to end the record. Dane, you're referring to Western Sunset. Western um, Sunset, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about that track because it's a very, very special track. So um, prior to Envy of None starting, a, a bit of um, a pinch me moment for me, because uh, listen, I, I've known the guys in Rush since 1982. Um, I got I, I, I had the honor uh, on the Roll the Bones tour to open up for the guys in Canada. So they always knew me as a musician. But as Hugh knows, I went over to the other side of the desk and I spent 12 years working with them um, as their label guy, A&R, part of the management team. So at no point were, did I ever blur the lines with those guys. And there was never a conversation about collaborating or doing music together. I was strictly their friend first, but their label guy, their A&R, the part of their management. And so when, um, when Neil was ill and they just stopped playing and everything, I got a call out of the blue from Alex and he said, Andy, I'm working on a couple tracks. Would you mind um, playing some bass for me? And so, you know, the 16 year old kid in me that saw them at Massey Hall is like, what the hell is going on here, man? I'm like, you know, I wanted to cover like, the phone. Let me go throw like, up real Whoa. quick. And before I answer that question. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Right. Oh, but I said, jokingly said to him, don't you know any other bass players? I think you got a guy on speed dial who's, whose initials are GL. Like, why are you calling me? Um, 
he said, Getty's busy writing his book and I'm really in the moment. And I played bass on it, Andy. It would mean a lot to me if you played and, and I'll return the favor someday, which is how I got him involved in Envy of None and asked him to play on one of the tracks. And it just grew from there. But one of those tracks was Western Sunset. And, and it wasn't at that time, it was not part of, of the Envy of None record. So he just sent it to me with no instructions other than please replace my bass part. Um, Getty Lee as a gift had given me a Jaco Pastoria's relict, um, a jazz bass, fretless jazz bass. And I thought, you know what, the, I, I think I'm going to play some fretless on this and I'm just going to sit back and maybe be a little bit of the wallpaper behind it. Um, and I play, and I played a couple different inversions where Hugh, you would know this as, uh, when, when, when you've got that chordal structure, there's a, a variety of, of passing notes that I could play underneath it. And so I, 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 I stretched out and got a little, um, I guess confident, even though I'm working with the rock and roll hall of fame guitar player. And I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to send this over. And I sent it to him and he said, oh man. You've played some beautiful passing notes. Thank you very much. And it was tucked away. That was it. It was never spoken about. And at one point, Alex had a, had a little guitar passage that that he played. And I thought, I'm going to mimic that. I'm going to play. I'm going to copy his guitar line, but just play the root notes underneath it. So we it, we tucked it away. And Alex said, "Thank you very much." Um, Spy House was another one that I played on that that was pre. Um, Envy of None. So we got to the point in the Envy of None record where we had about seven songs and we wanted to try to get to 10 or 11. I said to Al, what do you think about resurrecting some of your, your stuff that I played on, you know, and maybe we'll get somebody to play on it. So he called David and David played some brushes on, um, on Western Sunset. And then we got Maya to sing on uh, Spy House. So we turned these Alex Lifeson compositions in to envy of none um to be a part of the project it wasn't until we finished it and maya had we had this um we had this conference call and alex said would you like to try some vocals on western sunset and maya said um i would be honored can you tell me what the inspiration on that song was and he said well it was one of the last times that i saw my buddy neil peart i was in california we were hanging out together we went out onto the balcony like we would normally do after a night of fun and drinks and everything. And we, we rolled a big fatty and we just watched the sunset out there. And I went back to my hotel and I wrote that song. And that blew me away that that like that he hadn't told me he had written that song, you know, for Neil or as a, as a therapeutic um, vehicle for him to capture that moment. Had he told me that, you guys, but I, d I think I would have been very intimidated. Um, but the fact that I used a bass that Getty gave me and it came full circle that Getty gave me the bass. I played it on Alex's track, but it was written for Neil. Um, and I, and I listen to that song sometimes and, and, you know, get a little teary on it. And I know when we finished it, um, Alex was the guy that said, what about putting it at the end of the album? Because there was so much, you, you digest this huge sonic, um, uh, you know, collaboration of Envy of None. And at the end, you just sit back and it's this beautiful acoustic guitar piece. So that's kind of like a prayer. I thought I'll listen to it again. And I'll, now I know this story it'll, but it, it caught me as, as being a very emotional piece, but now, now I understand it. That song, you know, it has, uh, it has that beautiful melancholy, which is, you know, why I'm such a huge fan of that kind of music, you know, 
It's a special song for all of us. Yeah. The bigger track, give it credit for, though. You, yes, it is more of a prayer. It's more laid back than the other massive washes of, of texture and so on. But it's still got a beautiful amount of depth and air. You know, I had fun playing Fretless. And uh, there's something, uh, Dane, you'd, you'd appreciate this. There's something liberating about playing Fretless where you can slide in and out of notes. And I didn't get very busy like Pino or Jacko. I just I wanted to create a bit of a wash, almost like a pad, if you were, with the bass, you know? Great part, great song. No, no wonder he loved what you did. That's for sure. Are you? Are you guys going to do another record? Absolutely, we are. We just finished mixing and mastering a new song called "That Was Then, This Is Now." We are going to re-release probably in a couple months. An EP will come out. The EP um, is five songs. Three of them are remixes. We did a crazy remix of Dog's Life where I I I request I requested that we push Joe Vitale's drums up even even higher because I thought if I was to go back and mix it again, I you know, Dog's Life to me, I thought when well, we kind of let Joe down, he played so amazing you can't really hear him. So we're gonna get our day in court. This new version you can hear Joe loud and clear. So the EP the EP is um due to come out in a couple months. Um It'll be a limited vinyl CD release, but the fact that we've got this new song um, lets the world know that we're continuing to write. We've got about a half a dozen songs in the can right now that we're working on where we're same same type of thing. We'll exchange demos back and forth. Um, the difference this time, I believe, will be that we'll fly Maya into Toronto and have her tracks and vocals here and we'll get together as a unit um, because, as you said, Hugh, we're not going to be um, confined to our, our homes with the COVID stuff. And, and that's that's essentially why we made the record the way we did it, because we couldn't really get together. We all remember those times. Oh, man. Yeah. She's currently in living in Portland, Oregon. I understand she's moving to California, but it was um, uh, full transparency when we made the first Ambient Nun record. Um, we only collectively got together, all four of us, two, two different times. Uh, the rest of it was all done remotely. Well, I think your next album should be Envy of Somebody. <laughs> or just of one. <laughs> you can just keep going up and then Envy of Two. Skip, that's a good idea. I might, I might steal that. On the Music Buzz, we always talk about artwork. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about cover art. And I, I want to start with, you know, I know you guys have a history, you and you and Hugh, Andy. And I'd love to, we talked a little bit before we uh, before we jumped on here about, about some of that. So let's dive into Dive into that part if we can. Well, there's so many ways to look at you know, art as a, as a concept in the in the music world. Whether you're a you're a consumer, you're a kid, or you're you know you're an evolving uh, appreciator of music. But apart from our talking about this, you being on the other side of the desk, as you often refer to yourself, I've really never known about your taste. I can look at the Coney Hatch album that's always reminding me of the King Crimson you know, cover with the open mouth, you know, something similar there, that ill-fated sharpening stone spark thing for friction, which was, was I'm just kidding. I'm being, I'm being mean-spirited because we did, you and I worked on a concept for that album. Which I'd like to talk about too, if you're okay with, because I, I loved it, but um, keep keep going and then I'll, I'll jump in. I did have my era when bands were calling upon me for things like cherry pie for warrant, you know, or or Great White Hook, you know, Scorpion, Skin Deep. There's a lot of covers which involve a pretty girl, even as far back as, as the much more benign Permanent Waves. But this one was, you know, a little bit more over the top and a little bit more suggestive, but you gave me the title Friction, and I immediately thought of someone sliding down a banister. 
So I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> Sometimes it's a bit awkward to talk about somebody when they're on the actual call. But as a kid growing up in Canada and loving Canadian music and then signing to Anthem Records, knowing that Hugh Syme was, you know, literally a phone call away um, for, for the boys in Coney Hatch, we were always like, oh my God, we should get Hugh Syme. We should ask Hugh Syme to do a cover of ours, right? And um, I, I honestly, I can't remember, guys, because it's, you know, 40 years ago, but it took us till our third album where finally I, I kept saying it, guys, we, we wanted to work with Hugh. Can we work with Hugh on the Friction record? And so finally the label agreed. I, I do believe that, you know, they may have told us, you, you know, Andy, your band's not big enough yet. You can't really afford Hugh Syme. So we'll get sell some more records and then we'll call <laughs> you. It was like one of those, right? So we get to the third record. They finally agree. We get in touch. I think Hugh and I might have had some calls. And at that point, we only had Friction as an album title. And so Hugh did uh, uh, masterminded this photo session. And I vividly remember sitting down with Peggy Ciccone, our, our VP at that time. And the photos came in of this girl sliding down the banister. And the look on her face was, let's say, um, very orgasmic as she was sliding down the banister. And you just put two, to, two and two together, and which I thought Hugh was brilliant at doing. He never put it in your face. His covers made you think. You looked at the image and went signals why is this doll oh okay i get you know you gotta you gotta think and so there was quite a few women at our office and they were not down with it they were you know it was like that infamous um spinal tap uh scene where where they were talking about a girl on all fours with the dog leash and <laughs> oh, saying yeah. that it, you know it was kind <laughs> of like that you know you can't use this album come we're like well why not right so i want to tell you hugh that I finally got my day in court because we just played a 40th anniversary show at the Alma Combo for um, Coney Hatch's 40th anniversary. They have a beautiful LED giant screen behind the stage, almost like an amphitheater. And, and if you have high res files, you can give them to the lighting director and you can say on that song, I want that image. So we played two songs from the Friction album and big and bold and 20 feet high was the girl sliding down the banister. And Ooh, we just nice. put it up there. And if I remember, Hugh, I was so adamant about using that image that it was in, we ended up using it in the inner sleeve and went, it, it was a gong, it was a gong show trying to put together the cover in the last in the last minute and rebound from it. But there was a lot of pushback from the label about using that, thinking it was too um, sexist. And I, what's wrong with being sexy? Uh, really, what's wrong with it? <laughs> I don't think it was sexist. I mean, it, it was no more sexist than, like I say, you know, doing cherry pie. And why would they coin the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll if there wasn't room for the former? You know, it, it's not it's not rude. It was just it, tr truthfully, it was just kind of whimsical. All right, a little bit, a little bit uh, cheesecake. But how hot was the girl? Very. I loved the cover and it was um shot in classic hue sign form it was very grainy and you could feel the emotion come from it and it made you think and and i i never had an issue with it ever well we also shot it on a grand banister with a beautiful newel post in the shot at university of toronto so at a beautiful gothic it wasn't just you know some some suburban house with a it was pretty grand it, it was definitely over the top much ado about nothing it was just a girl enjoying the ride. You know, what can I say? You know, 
you never really knew what my tastes were. Um, always a big fan of your work. Um, loved all the Roger Dean, Roger Dean covers. I loved um, Storm Thorgerson with his hypnosis um, covers. So I, I, I gravitated towards um, album covers and sometimes bought albums just based on the cover. I'd walk in vinyl shopping and go, oh my God, that looks like a cool cover. I bet you, I hope the music is as good as the, as the artwork, right? Um, and a very quick story for you to tell you how we stumbled upon the artwork for that we ended up using for um, the Envy of None record. There was never really any uh, discussion. It, it was pretty organic how this happened. And we started talking about, um, you know, let's not put our photos on the on the album cover. Let's come up with something that just catches your eye. And I happened to be trolling Instagram one day and I um I don't know how it came up, but there was this company out of Lebanon called Plastic, P-L-A-S-T-I-K. And um, I just went down the rabbit hole and and he's a photographer from Lebanon and his name is Eli Rezkala. And and if, if anybody that's listening to the podcast and Hugh, I think you'd be a big fan of what he does. He's As soon as I saw the cover, my first thought was it reminded me of the, the three women under the uh, hairdryers from uh, the Parachute Club, I think it was. It felt very similar. I actually, for a moment, thought that it might not even be a Deborah Samuel cover. But when I when I checked out, I did go to his website, and he's very impressive. I really liked his work. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know, so I just kind of said to the other members, just very casually, guys, we should start thinking about artwork. And by the way, um, you just check this guy out. And and Alex went, and we particularly honed in on the two nurses and um and he said man this kind of reminds me of roxy music private life or something yeah. like you know, with the two, the that's two what i thought country it. life the country life album yeah and and we kind of liked the fact that that honestly had nothing to do with anything other than some eye candy and there's something to be said about eye candy and hughes made a, a, a career out of making magnificent eye candy and and i i'm a big believer that the the music doesn't necessarily have to match the image on the album cover and, and it just becomes part of the whole feel of the project right so long story short we got in touch with eli told him that we really loved his stuff he gave us the um the original files and allowed us to have a little bit of freedom on it. He had done a photo shoot for a high-end women's purse company. So the, the girls with the trays originally had purses on them. And we photoshopped the purses out and to put the two pills on. And then they had letters on their hats, which had something to do with the purse company. And we blanked them out. And all of a sudden, you know, this guy at the label said, they have an in-house art director. His name is Richard Beeching. And he said, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I mess in that world. So we gave it to him. He put the pills in. And the only comment I had to him were the pills are too small. Make them giant, <laughs> make them giant pills. And so we had some fun with it, but um, we literally licensed the, the, it was, you know, with Hugh and the projects that I've done with him and certainly with Rush, there's a very long process of of starting out with an idea and, and working on it and drawings. And, and Hugh can speak much more um, proficiently than I can about it. But this one was a bit of a one stop shopping. We found an image that we loved. We licensed it off and we paid for it. Um, he allowed us a little bit of artistic freedom to mess with his image a little bit. And off to the races we went. So we were like, okay, good. The album cover's done. It's a really lovely cover. I was immediately struck with it. I thought it was very cool, very modern. Um, and to your point, I love the fact that you made the the observation that the music and the artwork do not have to be joined at the hip. So often people think you've got to 
have some, and often it turns into cliches in this world of, of, of imagery and, and music, but when you have the luxury of working with a band like Rush, where a title like, like you say, Signals, gives rise to the very unlikely you know, amalgamation of a fire hydrant and a dog, um, same thing happened. The band almost didn't embrace counterparts being just a nut and a bolt. But the rest of the guys weren't sure at first. And, uh, of course, Neil, with his brave sense of minimalism, but he right away got it. And, of course, we spent the next three months challenging each other for that big prayer inside that was like salt and pepper, um, tortoise and hare, slap and tickle, ribbed and lubricated, you know, all those all those uh, counterparts. Anyhow, yeah, I was, I was very lucky to have that. But I, I think you're right. I think I mean, <clears throat> if I was with a a group of musicians and I said, you know, what about a, a Burbank, like an empty back lot in Burbank or something, just two, two gentlemen shaking hands and one of them's on fire. You could, you could hear a band going, what's that got to do with anything? You know, especially the title of the album was wish you were here. Right. And here's a flaming guy. Okay. Okay. Let him, hang on a second. It's one of my favorite covers though. It's, it's, it's turned out. Okay. For them in case you, it's, guys you, aware, you think, it's yeah, it's probably done. Okay. Yeah, it's done well. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, uh, with all of you guys and some of the UFO. There was a UFO cover that that um, it was called Obsession, and he put ball bearings in the guy's eyes, and but one guy didn't have any ball bearings. I'm like, what's going on? But who cares? It was a lovely piece of art. I got to see behind the scenes working with Hugh, being lucky enough to do some box sets with him, you know, um, when I was at Anthem, and just seeing the process of Hugh sending me a, a, a pencil drawing and then looking at the end product and being a bird on the fence, watching him create from, you know, literally this drawing to this beautiful end piece. I was, you know, Hugh, I, I've told you many times you made, you made me look like a rock star when I was at the, at the record company. Cause you know, I always said, no, like the band would want Hugh and we got to do this and we got to give him a budget. And it was constantly fighting for, you know, say, let's not nickel and dime Hugh. We got to We got to make a great album cover here because the fans are going to expect it. But it was quite a thrill to to be um, a bird, uh, you know, to uh, fly on the wall to watch Hugh working his magic with Rush. I was going to say, thank you, Andy. You're very on. You're very on brand right now. We appreciate that. Yeah. Music Buzz podcast. Our logo is a fly on the wall where thanks for those words i really appreciate it and i appreciate you because i've had occasions to work with people again as you coined the phrase on the other side of the desk and it's not been fun often it's not fun but it's always been a delight and, and if again you're an extension of the band so it's not like the a and r guy that walks into the studio and you go and and who are you you know like you know and that's i know Rush made a career of saying that to any A&R guy from, from the very beginning. And who are you? To the point where he basically, they basically said to Ray, no more A&R people. No, nobody else comes in the studio. You know? I'm about three years into the gig at SRO, a management company. The, um, and they're just about to start on their feedback record. And keep in mind, I knew the guys. I, I had a personal relationship with them. So I'm just at the office hammering out emails, doing what, doing what, you know, they call them bogues, doing what the bogues do. And I'm answering calls and Peggy comes into my office and she goes, Andy, the guys want you at the studio. You got to go up to phase one. And I go, really? And she goes, you don't understand, do you? And I go, well, no, I don't know. What do, what do they want me to do? They, 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 she said, I don't know. They want you up at the studio, but you don't understand the significance of this. And I said, well, why don't you tell me? 
she said, nobody's allowed up at the studio with with Rush anymore. They won't let any A&R guys up there. Ray and I aren't allowed to go up there. This is a huge honor that they're at. And I was like, I was kind of freaked out and intimidated, right? I was like, oh, shit. And so uh, anyway, I went up there and um, met with the guys. And, and it's, they sent me off on this mission to go find a bunch of vintage guitar amps and pedals and weird gear and... Um, I just, they said, you're welcome back here. And, and that just set this precedent where I got invited out to the studio. And apparently as the first A&R guy ever to be sitting um, around the studio and got to sit in on Clockwork, uh, Clockwork Angels and um, Snakes and Arrows and, and all of the DVDs and the remote truck when they did the live stuff. So I felt honored, but I, I didn't know that, Hugh. So it's nice to know that you even said that. From the very beginning in 1975, when I was basically just doing my job as, you know, interacting with the band as this art director that Ray had assigned me with the project to do, um, I went up with no concept that there was, in fact, a whole ordeal about piercing the inner sanctum of this, this, this band called Rush. Not anybody or not. And, and once I was inside, we were talking art and so on. Before I know it, not only did they embrace me and I embraced them as creative spirits, Getty and I were on the floor that day with an ARP synthesizer doing the opening for <laughs> 2112 in that same evening. So having having that luxury and having the ability to kind of reach beyond the aisles between artwork and music really did solidify our relationships, you know, forever. It really you know what it like? It it felt like he knew the movie um, Meet the Fockers, where they where he says the circle, and you're in here, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And he draws a circle because you're That's out great. there. Right? All of a sudden, even I got ooh, we're well, you're in, in there, circle, baby. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. You know, as far as artwork's concerned, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm glad it has mattered to you. You know, it it's it's what art directors live for is is as you say, eye candy and shelf appeal. Somehow you need to be able to kind of speak to to the un, unsuspecting people who come in with money for the one album they came to buy and a bit extra to buy another album. It's that other album. And this is Ray's theory, too. Ray said, I'd like to make sure that when someone comes in to buy Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin, they're going to be looking around for something interesting as an alternative or as, as an additional purchase. And it isn't always set in their mind that they're going to buy two specific albums. So that second unknown has to speak before you hear it. So yeah, that's always been the goal. Um, we talked earlier, and I, I'm going to shift gears here just because everybody knows you as, as you know, the bass player and the singer. Um, again, I didn't know you sang as well as you do. I, I really didn't know that about you. Um, and then I read a little deeper, and that's when I stumbled over the whole um, Kim Mitchell Kimosabi album where you co-wrote the whole album with him um yeah i i think that's a remarkable feat and it's testament to the fact that you know you your talent extends well beyond bass and and, and all beyond that genre did you guys both write music and lyrics were you the pie dubois or did you literally write music and lyrics together no, and I'm glad you brought up Pai Dubois because, listen, you know, Pai Dubois, for, for anybody that doesn't know who he is, he was always considered the fifth member of Max Webster. He was the lyricist and worked very closely with Kim and, and wrote some crazy, eclectic, out there 
um, lyrics that I always loved. I was like, where the hell are these? Yeah, just just like I I don't know. They did. They just were so um, out there and compelling, you know. And and yeah, it, it very much so, right? So it was interesting when Kim um, was doing his solo stuff. He he basically told me that he wasn't writing with Pai Dubois anymore, and he asked me if uh, if I would like to take a crack at writing some lyrics. So to answer your question, um, all the stuff on Kimo Sabi or or any of the other Kim Mitchell stuff, um, he would send me a demo, and it would be basically a bed track with Kim um, humming the melody line, and that and what that gave me was a little uh, chart, to, yeah, to match you know the cadence of of what he was hearing, um, gave me full carte blanche to write about whatever subject I, I, I wanted to. And so, um, you know, I, I tried to channel Pai Dubois. I honestly did. I thought, okay, Curran, here's your chance to stretch. You can get really out there and bizarre, you know, and, and, um, when even speaking about the song Kimo Sabi, you know, I, I wrote something about GI Joe is in a skirt again. And, you know, and just w like weird lines. I just started writing that would be visual and Kim was like, oh, my God, Andy, like th these I'm, I'm loving these. So at the time I was signed to Sony Music Publishing and they said to me, Andy, outside of your project, would you like to do some other songwriting? And so um, I tried to scratch that itch a little bit. And the other one that I'm quite proud of, um, not to, to move away from Kim Mitchell, because I had a lovely time working with him and he's still one of my best buddies. But there was a, a very popular Canadian band called Big Sugar, and they had a song called Digging a, Diggin a Hole, and um, that was their first single. And I ended up co-writing that song. Um, Dan Gallagher, who was a VJ on Much Music, um, wanted to form a band with me, and he was calling me up. And, and you know, God bless him. He was, a, he was a big personality, and we had a little cover band that we used to play covers with. And, you know, we were doing like Van Morrison and, and Get Ready. And we're, and he came to me one day, and he goes, we, we need to record an album, Andy. And I said, Dan, we're a cover band. What are you, what are you talking about? He goes, no, but you got to go out and write. You got to like go and write our first single. So honestly, guys, and God rest his soul because he passed away. He drove me freaking crazy. He called me every day. Have you written the song? Have you written the song? Have you? And one day he calls me and he could hear the music in the background. And he goes, is that our song? And I went, um, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Come over to the house, right? So he comes over to the house. I give him a CD, a blank CD that I'd recorded on, and I sent him away. And, and I thought, thank God Dan's out of my hair now. He calls me a couple of days later and goes, I got the lyrics. It's called Digging a Hole. I got the lyrics. Can I come over to your house and track it? So I said, yes, come over, put a headphone on, give him a mic, sit, track his vocal, off I send him. There we go, Dan's out of my hair. He calls me up about six months later and goes, my friend Gordy Johnson has written a third part for this, and this is now going to be the lead single on the new Big Sugar record. That album ended up going platinum in Canada, and it was the first single. And God, and, and you know, Dan, you've seen these things where sometimes out of the blue, these songs come from nowhere and you have no expectation of where they're going to end up. So um, that digging a hole, uh, you know, I, I look at my SOCAN checks and they're like, oh, it's still getting airplay. So that's good. Right. But that's that's a great story. We were talking to Cassim uh, Sultan recently and he was talking about working with Meatloaf on, on Bad Out of Hell. And he was making reference and driving, you know kind of forgetting about the project and driving down the road one day and hearing the song on the radio. And he's like, oh, isn't that like nice? a year later? Yeah. 
Yeah. I kind of, you know, he realized, oh, I played on that song. Isn't that really that nice? Sounds, that sounds kind of familiar. You know. Oh, it's the number one number one record all over the world. Oh, oh that <laughs> record. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I just wanted to share that because very, very similar type of type of well, thing. Well, that comes the next question. If digging a hole is like your first foray into what you call the challenge of writing lyrics, um, had you been ramping up to it with like journals and journals of words or you just sat down and that's part of your it just became part of your toolkit that you could write words <laughs> that's the lyrics i'm still doing it to this day oh come up with a with a little saying and pop it in there and find a home for it down the line uh, you're very organized i've got little slips of paper and matchbooks and crap hundreds of them laying around this basement but that's i i keep saying i'm going to invest in a dollar 50 and buy it. okay then you got them too uh, excellent good i'm glad to say i'm not the only guy that does that but he, uh, I love writing lyrics. I find it um, maybe in a similar way that you approach your artwork when someone gives me a concept or if I have a little tagline. Um, I, I find it pretty easy to mold uh, words and phrases. And I think Steven Tyler um, of Aerosmith, one of the favorite things that I ever read was about the way he writes lyrics. And he said he doesn't really even care if they mean anything if they sound good coming off your tongue or there's a cadence to it um you know and and i think of you know some of the his lyrics like he was talking about a j paul getty's ear or something and but it just sounded so cool when he was singing it was off the uh the rocks album and i was like what the heck does that mean and somebody addressed it one day and he said it means nothing it just sounds good coming off the tongue and um and kind of like the artwork thing sometimes if my lyrics don't make sense i couldn't give a crap if it sounds good look at i am the walrus you know try to figure that one out Emelina Pilcher climbing up the Eiffel Tower. That's death testament, though, to some brilliance as well. I mean, that's early. He was trying to. He he sat down and tried to go. Okay, they keep they, they keep look searching for hidden meanings. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. L.S. Okay, they're going to keep doing that. Let's see him figure this one out. Right. I love that stuff. Yeah, I've always sort of said with a certain degree of envy that while I love writing music and arranging music, when it gets to the intimidating task of kind of trusting your own gut about uh wordsmithing i'm always feeling the donald fagans and the jonies and the, and the jackson browns behind me just giggling and saying don't quit your day job i i really really admire lyrics so some someday i i may send you an mp3 just to see if you either tell me not to quit my day job or <laughs> I'm up, I'm up for the challenge, Mr. S uh, Hughesheim. I'm up for it. I've got a question, Andy, about back to the rhythm section we were talking about when we when we first started talking. So we talked about how important it is for bass players and drummers to be. That's the foundation of the song. And so my thing is, who who were the guys that influenced your bass playing when you first started playing? Oh my God! Um, thank you for asking because I I'm gonna I'm gonna rhyme off a bunch of heroes for me. And when I started listening to music, guys, full transparency, bit of a knucklehead, listened to a lot of hard rock and 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 metal, really into you know like the early Aerosmith and Cheap Trick um, and uh, UFO and and bands like that. But but um, you know I I was lucky enough to have o older siblings that kind of opened my mind to other types of music and my my older brother Mike got me into uh, Jeff Beck who who is one of my all-time favorites so I started and and God rest his soul I was you know I don't remember feeling 
that sad about an artist passing since Tom Petty passed. But listening to Jeff Beck and I guess, you know, the Beck Bogart and a Peace album um, was a big one for me. And I was like, I was like, oh, my God, listen to what this bass player is doing. And then and then I got hip to James Gang and listening to to um, I think his name is Dale Peters, maybe or maybe. So I started I started listening to bass players who were laying down the fin- foundations that you and I spoke about, Dane, but actually stretching a little bit. And and um, certainly Tim Bogart was doing that um, big fan of Mark. I just listened to that when Jeff passed. I, I was listening to jeff beck music and I, that's one of my favorite records too the bba record and his bass is so he's way louder than carmine's drums on that record he must have been in their mix in the mix dude his bass is so loud anyway i just i couldn't believe it i hadn't heard that in years and i went wow it's louder than jeff beck it's like lead but the bass is the loudest thing on the album okay i'm, I'm sorry to interrupt but i just know that but and and it's a very very overdriven tone and I loved how it was pushed out front and that James gang album um, at Carnegie Hall when it captured uh, James gang live same same thing his sound is so blown out so it sent me on this search to figure out okay what's the ultimate bass sound ended up buying an SVT um, 300 watt head with a 10 cabs never changed since then I was like P bass into that that's the sound right but then with with the listening to Jeff Beck started going down the rabbit hole of of Stanley Clark, Jaco Pastorius. Um the, I, I'll go back to a rock bassist um, who played with Pat Travers, a guy by the name of Mars Cowling. What an amazing yeah. And and so um, you know, I then then of course Getty Lee, Chris Squires, the naturals, like and, and le- trying to learn how to play some of those lines and buying a Rickenbacker. So um, quite a quite an eclectic taste. I listened to Frank Zappa and started to really like what Patrick O'Hearn was doing on his solo records. In full transparency, getting going down the rabbit hole with Patrick O'Hearn probably led me into where Envy of None had had sort of because I, I had appreciation of this almost like ambient trippy music that was very much instrumental but um loved all of those bass players i've probably forgotten a few here but those are the main ones for me and certainly i mean chris squire and and actually my buddy steve harris and i I can't you know watching what steve would do with iron maiden and and i loved guys who pushed the limits a little bit on it i worked on the x factor album with steve and the band you didn't mention McCartney, which I always consider kind of a... Oh, I, I, I certainly have passed over him, and I shouldn't, because my very first bass was a Hoffner Beetle bass, and, and I still have it. I've got black flat-wound strings on it, but um, I, think what, I think when I was listening to Beatles, I, uh, it was overshadowed with my appreciation of their songwriting, and then many years later, I went backwards and went, oh my God what are these bass lines that he's playing? And I have a deep appreciation for it. And I read a, a really inter- interesting article that, um, especially on Sergeant Pepper, um, Sergeant Pepper's, he, uh, Paul starts talking about how a lot of his bass lines were inspired by the tuba. And he listened to a lot of circus music. And when you listen to some of his bass lines, you can almost, you can almost hear tuba lines in it, right? But he's a phenomenal bassist. I love some of his stuff, and and I'm and I'm remiss in pa- passing over him, Hugh. So thank you for mentioning that. Well, only because I'm a huge Be- Beatle file. Um, you mentioned um, the dearly departed Jeff. Are you familiar with? Are you a fan of Tal's work? 
Tell Wilkenfeld? Yeah, yeah um, I, um, I don't know too much about her, but certainly saw Jeff a couple times with her playing bass, the young, the, the young female Australian bassist. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She's very good. Yeah. Another, another one comes to mind. You might want to check those Mohini. If you haven't found her, she's from, I believe she's indie, um, but she brings a lot of those uh, rhythmic um, patterns from her background. And she's also a monstrous bass player, but check out Mohini, M-O-H-I-N-I. We're at an hour here, guys, so I know that's what we had with the Ian. I really enjoyed it today, and and you guys uh, you guys went down some really great uh, rabbit holes, and can't, I can't say enough about my buddy Hugh and how talented he is, and getting to see his face again and, and connect is, is a nice treat. It's an extra cherry on the top for me. Right back at you, I really appreciate it. Great, great talking to you, Andy. Fantastic stuff, man. Honestly, boys, thank you for having me. Uh, an absolute pleasure, Dane. I, I know you're drumming and you're, you're kick ass, buddy. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.